Well, we've been in this sermon series at St. Mark to kind of kick off the summer that we've been calling Don't Pray This. And I know that might be a confusing title for a sermon series given that we are in church and we want you to pray, right? Um, But the heart behind this series, it's not that these are prayers that we don't want you to pray, but we want to become more aware of our prayers and how God answers them. Right, because what we believe about God is that he does answer our prayers, but we need to be aware of the fact that when he does, he does so in a way that <laughs> we don't always expect. God has this sneaky way of having his will being done rather than our will being done. Even when God answers our prayers, he can throw us a bit of a curveball, right? For example, if you pray this prayer, God, lead me. God, give me direction. God is going to be faithful to answer that prayer. He's going to give you direction. He's going to show you a place to go, but it might not be a place where you want to go. It might be a place that's a little bit uncomfortable for you, a place that maybe even seems hostile to you, but he will put you in that place so that you can be a blessing to people around you. That's the story of Jonah that we heard from Pastor James a couple weeks ago. And and likewise, if you pray this prayer, If you pray the prayer, God, give me strength. Show me what it means to be strong. God will be faithful to answer that prayer as well. And he'll give you strength in abundance. But on the way to giving you that strength, he will give you that strength so that you can face a battle that maybe you weren't quite ready for. He'll give you that strength to face a trial that maybe you didn't ask for in the first place. So there's there's beauty in prayer. And we want to be people who pray, but we have to be aware of our prayer and that God kind of reserves the right to answer them how he pleases. Our prayers can be a little bit dangerous, so we need to be careful what we pray for. And this week, to kind of cap off this series, we're going to be looking at a really famous prayer in the Bible and a prayer that I think we pray pretty often. It's the prayer, God, give me wisdom. And this prayer for wisdom, it's a good prayer to pray right? Because when we pray this, we kind of get a piece of God's mind, but it's also a dangerous prayer. And the reason why a prayer for wisdom is really dangerous is because God, when he answers this prayer, he'll give you wisdom, but he'll also humble you in the process. On your way to wisdom, God will show you kind of how foolish you've been, some of the foolish choices that you've made, and maybe that you just are a fool in a lot of ways. That's kind of what we're going to see as we kind of unpack the rest of this morning. But but it's worth stepping back for a moment and just asking this question before we go any further. Why is it, like when you pray for wisdom, when I pray for wisdom, why is it that wisdom is something that we ask God for? The answer might sound obvious, but it's worth mentioning. We, We pray for wisdom from God because we want to know more so that we can do more. We want to know more about the world around us, more about the situations, the circumstances that we're in. We want special insight and intuition from God so that we can do more, so that we can do more to solve the problems that are either immediately in front of us or problems that seem far on the horizon. We want wisdom, in short, so that we don't do something foolish. We want wisdom so that we can avoid the pain and the shame and the heartache that comes with being foolish and making foolish decisions. We pray for wisdom because we want God to help us to solve our problems so that we don't have to solve these problems on our own. And this is exactly what we see when we look at our text this morning. We're going to look at Solomon, who's got a really big problem on his mind, so he asks God for a piece of his mind. And the problem that is on Solomon's mind is this, is he actually feels a bit foolish, 
not foolish in general, but foolish compared to the wisdom that his father David had. Solomon feels too foolish, in fact, to be the king of Israel. Let's look back at our text this morning. We'll start at verse 6. Here we kind of, kind of see the, maybe the precursors to the problem for King Solomon. On the surface, this is just praise for God and for his father David, but there's also something underneath what Solomon is saying here. Listen to this. Solomon says, God, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness. Now, in short, what Solomon is saying here is, God, I don't know much, but I know a thing or two about you. I know first that you are a great and faithful God. You've got great and steadfast love. And two, I know that you show this great and steadfast love to people who are pretty great, who do the right things, who live righteously. Right? I know that you're great, and I also know that David, my father, was great, so you showed your great love to a great man, my father, David. And you might be hearing this from Solomon thinking, well, what's the problem? There doesn't seem to be any problem at all here. But, but actually, if we look underneath this text for a minute, you have to imagine for me that, that Solomon, as he's talking to a really great God about a really great father and great king that has come before Solomon, there's this really great shadow that is cast over him. There's a pressure that Solomon feels as the new king of Israel to kind of live up to the reputation, to the prestige, and the honor that David had before him. And if we're honest, if Solomon's honest, he doesn't feel equipped for that task. Why, right, let's go on in verse 7. This is what Solomon thinks about himself. He says, Now, God, you have made me, of all people, king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I don't even know how to go out or to come in. What Solomon's saying is, is I don't know the ins and outs of this king thing yet. Like, they kind of just put the crown on my head when I was 12 and said, good luck, sport, you're in charge now. Like, I didn't get any training for this. I didn't get, like, a business degree or a political science degree. Like, I don't know how to do this king thing. I feel, God, like a fool. I don't know much. And so, God, I need some help. This is Solomon's prayer for wisdom in a nutshell, and, and it's strange because Solomon feels foolish, but he actually does something kind of smart. Solomon does something smart in the midst of his foolishness. He actually goes to God the way that we do and asks God for wisdom to help solve this problem. He says in verse 9 this, God, give me, therefore, an understanding mind. Give me an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and and evil. Now, there's two really big things that Solomon is doing here. First, he's asking for wisdom the way that most of us kind of ask for it. He's asking for wisdom in the practical sense. He's like, God, help me to govern these people well. Help me to kind of have this business savvy, this, this sense of how to be a king and do my job in a way that leads me to success. But it's interesting because Solomon, he's, he's praying for wisdom, praying for insight from God. But in this prayer, Solomon, he actually stumbles upon a, a kind of a fuller and a bigger picture of what God's wisdom is supposed to be. Because Solomon knows if he's going to lead the kingdom of Israel, he's going to have to be able to discern the difference between good and evil. So he asks God, God, help me discern. Help me know the difference between right and wrong so I can lead in a way that doesn't just lead to my success, but everybody else's success around me. Help me use my knowledge for good rather than evil. Help me to know not just more, but to know 
better. And that's really what wisdom is, kind of in a full biblical sense, right? Wisdom, according to God, it's not just knowing more. It's not just about kind of having smarts in your head, knowledge that you have access to. It's about kind of having a moral compass inside of you, guided by God. It's not just about knowing more. It's about knowing better. And it's important for us as as Christians, especially, to hold these two things really, really close together. Because it's possible for us, entirely possible for us, to have one without the other. It's really possible for us to know a lot about God, but to not really know God and his heart. To know God's mind and the things that he thinks, but not to act in a way that actually honors God for what he thinks. It's really possible for us to know more, but not know better. And the danger for us when we know more, but we don't know better, is we start to use that knowledge for ourselves. We start to abuse the wisdom, the practical wisdom that God has given us so that we can exploit and scheme and scam and plot against everyone else to try to outsmart them, to try to outsmart the system, to try to kind of make everyone else look like a fool or just to fool them. We use what we know, the more that we know, and we don't do better with it. There's a couple of words that we have for this, right? This is not an uncommon phenomenon. Typically, we call this being too smart for your own good, right? And and if you're too smart for your own good, if you're smart but you're not good, you know what you are? You are an evil genius. Seriously, like this is what it is. It's people who are evil geniuses, people who know more but don't know better, who know a lot but use the lot that they know to hurt other people and just benefit themselves. But there's a danger to being an evil genius. It's dangerous to be, I mean, too smart for your own good. And the danger is this. You can outsmart some people, even most people, most of the time, because you you are pretty smart. But you can't outsmart everybody all of the time. And when you finally get caught, you realize that you are only fooling yourself. You yourself, you think you're wise, like you can outsmart everybody, but you yourself, you are the fool. I'll give you a, a minor example of this. When I was in the third grade, pivotal time in my life, I remember we had these minute math quizzes. Anyone remember minute math quizzes in the third grade? Right? A couple of people remember these. Uh, Just a refresher for how these minute math quizzes go, right? Um, You have about a minute to do as much math as you can, and then uh, the teacher grades you, assesses you based on how good your math was. And so the teacher gives you a quiz, and you can take that quiz in either a pencil or, if you're feeling lucky, uh, a black pen, right? Because you can't erase anything. And then after you take that quiz together as a, pla- as a class, uh, you put your pencils, your black pens away, and you pull out a red pen, right? Because red is the universal color for grading, apparently. And then uh, you grade your quiz, you mark the answers right or wrong based on the answers that the teacher gives you to the quiz. It's kind of the honor system. But I'll let you guys in on just a little bit of a secret about me in the third grade. I happen to be an evil genius, truly. At the ripe old age of nine, I was a really, really smart kid, but I didn't always use my smarts for uh, good, right? Uh, And here's what I really discovered at the ripe old age of nine. I discovered uh, that a pen can be red on the outside and then have black ink on the inside. Now, some of y'all are getting ahead of this. You see where this is going. But let me just illustrate it for you, right? So I would uh, take my math quizzes, but I wouldn't really take my math quizzes. Um, but then when it came time to grade our math quizzes, I would put my black pen away, and then I would take out my red pen from my desk 
and I would grade my quiz, but I wouldn't really grade my quiz. I would just take my quiz uh, with the help of all the answers my third grade teacher was giving me. And I know what you're thinking. Wow, why didn't I think of that in the third grade? I'm super smart. Um, and I think this is clear, right? I wasn't just your average, everyday cheater, right? This took some thought. This took being a bit of an evil genius. I wasn't just looking over someone's shoulder and trying to copy the answers of the smart kid. I was the smart kid because I knew more than everybody else. I'd hacked the system. I'd outsmarted the whole dang thing, right? But, you know, I wasn't just your average cheater. I was kind of like an all-star cheater, like, like kind of like the Tom Brady of cheating, <laughs> which is just Tom Brady, obviously. Um, the original punchline to that joke, by the way, was a reference to a certain something that happened in this town about three or four years ago, and I switched it because I love you people, and I care about your teams. I respect you deeply, and I didn't want you to throw me out of the church. But anyways, I was a big, big cheater in the third grade, so good at cheating, in fact, that I almost never got caught. The one time that I got caught, I remember it Clear as day, I was, I was taking my quiz, carrying out my normal scheme, copying the answers that Miss Whitest said for us, and then little Hannah Shurik was sitting next to me. And God bless little Hannah Shurik, but she was a bit of a teacher's pet, a bit of a brown nose, a bit of a tattletale, always was, always will be, and she had the audacity, <laughs> the absolute audacity. Here's the weird thing. We actually had these privacy folders, right? This will make sense in a minute. You remember the privacy folders as well, so you don't cheat on somebody else's test? These privacy folders actually helped me out because it meant nobody could see me cheating on my quiz. Uh, but then Hannah Shurik, one afternoon, she had the audacity to look over her privacy folder, invade my privacy, and then see the red pen that was in my hand. There you go, I pulled out the right one. See the red pen that was in my hand, but also see the black ink that was coming out of the red pen. And then when she put two and two together, math puns, uh, she screamed at the top of her lungs, Cody is cheating on his math quiz. And at that point, the whole class just dropped their red pens in stunned silence. And they said, say it ain't so, Hannah Shurik. And Hannah Shurik said, it is so, class. And she didn't know her lines that well. But at that point, Miss Whitest, she came over to my desk, saw the red pen in my hand, the black ink coming out of the red pen, and she asked me to come visit her at her desk. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the situation, if you've ever been here before, but going to the teacher's desk in the third grade is not a fun time. Because what you know when you go to the desk is you're going to get a talking to. You're going to get the lecture, you're going to get the riot act, you're going to get sent to the principal, there's going to be emails and phone calls home. And I remember being so scared of that, but none of it actually happened. Because I remember sitting at Ms. Wyatt's desk, kind of looking up at her, and she, she just shook her head at me. She shook her head at me, looking at my quiz, and she said, Cody, you are such a smart kid. You're such a smart kid. You know a lot. And so I really thought, Cody, that you would know better than this. I thought you knew better than to, than to lie or to cheat or, or to try to get away with it. I thought you knew better than this. She finally said to me, Cody, I'm not even angry with you. I'm just disappointed. And I'll tell you what, St. Mark, at the ripe old age of nine, those words cut me to my core. Why? Because I knew that I knew better. I knew that I made a mistake. I knew better, but I didn't do better. I wasn't outsmarting everybody. I was just fooling myself. And we've all been there. 
We've all been there. That's kind of a minor example, but all of our foolishness, it kind of plays out just like that, right? Because my foolishness and your foolishness, you know what it starts with? It starts with this thing called pride. It's this voice in our head, this ego in our head that says, I know more, I know better than you. And because I know more than you, because I know better than you, I don't have to do what you tell me to do. I don't have to follow your instructions. I don't have to live by your rules. I know better, so I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And I'll try to get away with it too. See, we all start with this pride that says, I know better, so we start to try to outsmart people, start to try to scheme people and scam people, but then uh, we can do that well for a little while, but it never lasts forever, right? And the reason that doesn't last forever is because as, as smart as you might be, and you're pretty smart, right? You can get away with a couple of things, but as much as you know, no matter how much you think you know, you will never know enough to fool everybody all of the time. And eventually, you and I, we get caught in our lies, caught in our schemes, and there's this new feeling, this new sensation that we feel. It's no longer pride. It's this voice of shame. And shame is just this voice in our heart that says, you should have known better than that. You should have known better than that, and you should have done better than that. Shame on you. You are a fool. And we've all felt that voice, right? We've all felt that shame, that voice of shame, one way or another. And, and we've all been fools one way or another. And it's because you and I, we happen to be fools that we really need to ask God for his wisdom. It's because we are so foolish in our sin that we actually need to pray to God for wisdom. Because in prayer, God does a couple of incredible things. In prayer, God actually has the ability to fix, to solve our foolishness and, and to mold our foolishness into faith. And here's how that works. In prayer, one of the things that God does with us is he humbles us. God humbles us in our prayer. He kind of reminds us of where we stand, our, relate, our wisdom in relation to his Right, one of the things that prayer does, think about how prayer actually works. In order to pray to God, you have to invite another voice besides your own into a conversation about what you're going to do. Right, the, the assumption underneath that is that you think this voice actually has something interesting or, or important to add to you. You have to have some degree of respect for what God has to say, some, some level of humility to even approach him in prayer. And then if we're faithful in prayer, the voice, the words that God gives us will actually submit to that wisdom. We have to submit to the authority that he has because he knows better and knows more than us. One of, our, one of the biggest things we have about prayer, one of the best things about it is that it does humble us. We, we don't have to pretend like we know everything or that we know more or better than God. God will just show us what he knows and hold our hand as we go through life. And one of the other beautiful things about prayer, how it kind of solves not just our pride, but our shame, is, is prayer encourages us. It reminds us of where we stand with God because it reminds us that God stands with us in every single problem that we face. He doesn't just stand beside us. He goes before us, and he's behind us every step of the way. How do we know this through prayer? Because in prayer, we're in constant conversation with that God. 
There's no such thing as long-distance prayer. It's not a long-distance phone call between earth and heaven. No, when you pray, God is in the room with you. When you pray, God is speaking to you and with you right in front of you and really even inside of you through the spirit that he's given you. We are encouraged by God's presence. He is really present with us when we pray. And the biggest thing that should encourage us about prayer is that our prayer points us back to Jesus. Our prayer should show us the wisdom of God as it was revealed to us in Jesus, right? Because the the beauty about prayer is that we're reminded that not just that we want to get to know God or that we can know God, but that God came to this earth to know us, to know you and me more and better. And here's how that kind of played out, right? God stepped into earth, stepped into humanity in Jesus, and then when he grew up, he started preaching these sermons that had wisdom that blew everybody away. He had wisdom beyond everybody else's comprehension. He was smarter than the teachers, smarter than the scribes, smarter than everybody else who had studied this for years and years, and he kind of made them look foolish from time to time. When they tried to trip him up in his answers, Jesus always seemed to be able to outsmart them, but he wasn't just a liar or a schemer. Jesus, his, his heart was just as big as his head. He was using his wisdom for good. He was using the power that he had to, to help people, to heal people, to, to raise them from the dead even at times. And, and, and the people around Jesus, they marveled at his wisdom. At least most of them did. Because these same people that Jesus kind of made a fool of from time to time, they thought Jesus was ultimately the fool. And not because of the smart things that he said, no, but because Jesus had this audacious claim to be God himself in the flesh they thought Jesus was foolish, that he was out of his mind, that he was a blasphemer of all things. And so they wanted to make a fool out of Jesus. And they decided to make a fool out of Jesus by putting him on a cross, by stripping him naked, exposed, embarrassed for everybody to see. Because they thought this, if this Jesus really is God, what kind of God would be so foolish to let himself die at the hands of the people that he created? Turns out your God is that foolish. Because Jesus on the cross, he suffered foolishness, just just bore the folly of it all, and, and he bore our foolishness on that cross as well. All the pride that we have, all the shame that we have, we he took that on himself on the cross and he took that to the grave with him. And you guys know the story. What happens next? Jesus raises from the grave three days later, showing everybody that he's no fool that he actually beat death, that he's exactly the person that he said he was. He wasn't lying even for a minute. And then he goes and he shows everybody who's willing to see the scars in his hands because he wants them to know something. He wants them to know that the wisdom of God revealed in him. He wants them to know something more. And he wants them to know something better. But more than any of that, Jesus wants them to know him. Why? Because Jesus is always more. And Jesus is always better. He's more than our worst mistakes and he is better than our best days. Every problem that you face, every trial that you face, Jesus is standing right there beside you. He wants to know you. He already knows you perfectly because he made you, but he wants to know you personally and he wants to talk to you. 
he wants to know you even in the midst of your foolishness. When you feel like a fool, that's the perfect time to go to the God of all wisdom and say, God, I need you. I need you to show me the difference between good and evil. I need you to show me the difference between wisdom and foolishness. God, I just need you to take my hand and lead me and give me strength to face this life because I can't do it on my own. And when you pray that prayer, God will be faithful to answer it. He'll humble you, he'll encourage you, and he'll remind you of who you are and of his love for you. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your wisdom, for a wisdom that goes so far beyond our understanding. We thank you for giving that to us in your son, Jesus. We thank you for sharing your spirit of wisdom with us that we can now know you better. I pray that the wisdom that you give us, God, that we would not use it selfishly, that we would not use it foolishly, God, but that you would help us to use it charitably that you would lead us to give, lead us to serve, lead us to love the way that you did. I pray that we would know more about you, God, more about your heart and about your mind, God, but more than anything, I pray that we would leave this place just knowing you, knowing that you are more, knowing that you are better than we could ever imagine, God, and we thank you so much for that. In your name we pray, amen.